Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, we are here once again uh, in the Sampson Foundation with Frida Sampson. This is Kari Frazier through Detroit is Different, continuing the Black Coffee podcast. Uh, where we explore a lot about Detroit's black history. Uh, we have a heck of a matriarch when it comes to Detroit's black history yes, here with do. us today. Um, and we can kind of open up even how we began. As I said, I would always say, you know, mama, uh, I'd say mama and Neb. And then I would Frida say. would say, uh, mama and Neb. And then I'm like, okay, that, that is... <laughs> That's Doctor House. Right. <laughs> but oh, Doctor House, right? <laughs> so, so let's start there. The Aneb name and the Doctor House name. Let's go to both. Aneb. Oh, when did right. it come about, and what does it mean? All oh, right. Well, Aneb, because it's Sealy, is the African name that I chose way back in the '60s, mm. when so many of us in the um, civil rights and black consciousness movement were choosing African names, right, to make the identification with the continent more real in our lives and in our daily practice. Um, Aneb uh, is um, a name of a Somali sister whom I didn't know but who was friends with a friend. But I liked that name, Aneb, because it seemed a contraction of the name that I was supposed to have been given but which my mother objected to with such vehemence. Mm. I was supposed to be named Annabelle, and my mom said, no way oh. would a child of hers <laughs> That's in 1941 That's be named sure. Annabelle. Okay, okay. So, well, so Aneb is sort of a squashing and contraction. Yeah. So when I first heard Aneb, I thought, ooh, I like that. I want that name. And then the last name, Kozitsili, um, is the family name of a dear friend Willie Kozitsili, Carol Petsy Kozitsili, who's a well-known African poet. In fact, mm. after he went back home uh, in the 90s, uh, he was named Poet Laureate of oh, South wow. Africa. Oh. But I knew Willie in the 60s and 70s when he was in exile. We were friends. His wife was a good friend of mine. Um, and instead of taking a name out of a book, which is what many of us did, because where else were you going to mm. find uh, I decided I'm going to be a part of a family I know. So um, I took the name Kozitsili. It's a Swana name. It comes from the Swana people of South Africa. Okay. Aneb. Aneb. Uh, what is the Aneb, it really, the there's not, you know, really sort of serious meaning. I understand it means black grape. It refers to those really big black grapes. Mm. Aneb, right? It's mm. Aneb. Um, so there's not a lot of meaning in the in the name itself, except its sound and its spelling had a great deal of meaning for me. Okay, Annabelle, why would have that, was that the That was considered, choice? that was my my paternal grandmother's name. Oh. And that's why he wanted me to have that name. And my mother said, no, I don't think so. So what, because of old her relation? No, thing. just okay. old fashioned. Just old fashioned. She thought of it as yeah, old fashioned. Yeah, I can appreciate So that. her concession was Anne, mm -hmm. which became my middle name. 
I, mm-hmm. I had a similar dynamic. My my dad wanted me to be named Frederica. Okay. And unfortunately, my brother my brother intercepted and said, Mm-mm, "That would be a terrible thing to do to my sister." <laughs> and so they compromised it, Frida. With Frida. So yeah. Sometimes you that's need somebody one. to step yeah, so in and saying, speak on your behalf. So, well, that's, <laughs> what, that's what mom was doing. He, he should be high on the wheel list. <laughs> <laughs> should be for sure. Right. So in the cultural community, you know, in Detroit and in uh, national conventions and coming together and whatever, um, I used my African name. I continue to use Gloria House, what we call a slave name, uh, in my professional uh, work in the universities where I was teaching. So that's, okay. you know, but mm-hmm. Mama Neb, that's what you were asking. How mm-hmm. did that come about? Mm-hmm. Well, in the early 70s, a group of families here in Detroit decided uh, we were going to found an independent black school. Uh, Mami Mani, you remember Mami Mani Humphrey, whom we all love, and um, several other families got together and um, established the Alexander Crummel Affirmative School for Gifted Children. Mm-hmm. And um, we put all of our children in it and we created a school. That school evolved into Aisha Shule, then into Aisha Du Bois Academy, right? And um, was operated um, by Mami Mani for almost 40 years as an independent black school. So within that school and within all the independent black schools that evolved during that period from the mid 70s right up through um, early 21st century, the teachers were considered mamas and babas, mothers and fathers, in the absence of the blood parents. Mm. When we had the children, it was our responsibility to act as their parents while they were in our keeping. So they addressed us as mama or as baba. Uh, So I was mama Aneb in that context. And many people in the cultural community know me from okay. the school okay. um, community. So that name has stuck, Mama Neb. That is so <laughs> helpful because I I wasn't sure if it was appropriate for me to refer to you as Mama Neb. It didn't seem mm-hmm. quite right because we're so close uh, in, in proximity mm-hmm. in terms of age. Really, I'm like, yes. mm, yeah, I right, better stick right. with Dr. House. <laughs> <laughs> or just a Neb. A Neb is okay. fine, just fine. So, so you Dr. Go. House, the housemaid, mm-hmm. that is the, your dad's side? No, that was... is my former husband's family okay. name, the Houses of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much involved in community work in, in the city of Detroit. Um, pa House was into real estate. He was a Garveyite. Mm-hmm. Um, my wow. house was very much a organizer of women. Their daughter... Claudia House Morecambe, some people may know, became an attorney and became very involved in the civil rights movement and went and spent South, uh, spent t- time in Mississippi as a lawyer working to defend civil rights workers and then came back to really exercise a lot of leadership in human rights struggles here mm-hmm. in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the House family, um, and I married Stuart House, um, son of that family. Okay. That's how. Yep, uh, wow. uh, Judge Morkum, as I call it, that uh-huh. was Judge definitely Markham. one of my big homies. Okay, um, all right. <laughs> I was a pallbearer in uh, oh wow in her um, at her funeral at her funeral mm-hmm. uh, for the service, and uh, along 
with your son. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, Judge Markham was definitely the homie. So okay. your so other names because we're in the naming, so mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. you can you know travel a lot through history in names. So mm-hmm. your paternal my, and maternal. My own uh, family name is Larry L A R R Y. My father's side. Um, I was Gloria Larry before marrying Stuart House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my mother's people were Robinsons, and they're from Tampa, Florida. Mm. Yeah, know any Robinsons? I got a lot. Of it's kind of hard not to know a Robinson <laughs> yeah, or, or a few. <laughs> not a lot of Larrys. Not a lot. I know Larry's kind of an unusual like name. Larry, you'd be yeah. like. Yeah. 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 Maybe blood. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, we can open up um, on a lot of levels. Uh, I think uh, you you came with a lot. I I didn't know what we were going to talk about, so I just came with stuff. And and you (laughs) is the most important thing. But writer, uh, mom, uh, civil rights advocate, human rights advocate. and then just like one of the most like sometimes I'll hear stories just like you and Judge Morgan. Like I'll hear these stories about some of the things you've done. And then it's like, oh man, but she was so sweet and everything. Like I wouldn't expect her to be like, <laughs> like all of these like revolutionaries and, and you know. So um I remember just in in your story, uh let let's let's talk about Detroit and okay. It's tied to black people. Uh, what led you and your family here? Mm-hmm. And um, let's talk a okay. little bit about that. Okay. Um, well, I married a Detroiter, right? Stuart House, mm-hmm. uh, grandson of Ma and Pa House, uh, and nephew of Claudia, Judge Judge Morgan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we were both working in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Alabama. Um, we met each other there. We got married there. We got married at Tuskegee in Tuskegee, at the Episcopal Church there on the Tuskegee campus. Hmm. Shortly thereafter, I became pregnant, and um, there was a a, um, a doctor, a volunteer doctor, Jewish woman, very generous and loving woman who took care of us SNCC workers. Right, hmm. whenever we got sick, would tell us what to do. Or, um, what around what year was this? Um, so let's see now. We were married in '66. Okay, so yeah. it was uh, Stokely Carmichael? Oh yes. Well, Stokely had been elected chair before then, and was no longer in the sort of day-to-day work in Lowndes County, which is where I had met uh, Stokely and where we had worked together. Hmm. By this time, he's traveling all over the world. I think he's in and out of Africa, he's been to Cuba. Uh, he's representing SNCC at an international mm-hmm. level by this time. So it's like, man, that guy used to be eating greens. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, well, you know, he, he was still our brother, but he was doing another aspect of SNCC work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, when Stuart and I became pregnant, the doctor, whose name I can't recall right now, I'm so sorry, said, if you want to carry this baby to term, you're going to have to go somewhere where you can eat three meals a day and mm. get proper rest and whatever. So we decided, okay, we would leave. We left Alabama. Um, Stuart was working on in Greene County, and I was working in Lowndes County at that point, with the intention of coming back. 
right after having the child. But we got here, Stuart got a job, I had a child, had my son, employed at Cass Tech to teach, and one thing led to another, mm. and we never went back. So here I am in Detroit mm. right now. As a result, we never did go back to Alabama, but became very much involved in the work that was being done here in the city. So when you came in Detroit around like, so 60, what right, year? Right, we came in, um, let's see, New Year 1967, just before the rebellion, yeah, during the holidays. What, yeah. did, what did Detroit feel like to you? It felt wonderful. Mm. It felt chocolate city. I mean, the bus drivers, the bank tellers, the everybody, right? Everybody just felt, wow, this is our town. Very much in contrast to Alabama. Well, in Alabama, of course, we were living in the black community, but we were dealing with that antagonism and that hostility. Mm. You know, the community is very separate, right? And it wasn't as if we as black people could sort of celebrate our presence because we were under such mm. oppression and the threat of violence all the time. Mm -hmm. It's always in the in the air, right? But here in Detroit, I really felt Detroiters were so much in control of their own life, their own, um, just the culture of the city. And so it was a very good feeling coming to Detroit in 67. The music was fantastic. Motown was putting out this wonderful music. Uh, and as I said, everywhere you looked, there were black people in charge, yeah. right? Hmm. So it felt it felt wonderful. So were you to come here from Alabama, particularly, was a big shift. Yeah. It felt wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Did it feel like a, a migration for you um, in a sense? Or? Not really, because as an Air Force brat, I had lived oh, okay. everywhere except I'd never lived in a city that was predominantly black mm -hmm. as Detroit was and uh, where the culture, where blackness was so much a part of the culture, the music, the culture of the churches, where, you know, that was dominant, right? Mm -hmm. So, so were you wonderful. surprised then when the 67 rebellion occurred? Not really, because I knew that though we had um, a substantial working class and people were living quite well then. I knew also there were people who were not living well, right? Mm -hmm. And who had not been able to get in into that ladder of mobility and comfort, right? Achieving a certain level of comfort. So I wasn't really taken aback by okay. that, no. No, I knew that, you know, that whole 20-something age for black men who hadn't been able to find work. Or, yeah, so I knew that was there, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which drives me right to, uh, I know your connection with the Republic of New Africa. Mm -hmm. What what built that connection? How did you find out about it? Why? Um, well, the details of how I found out about it have faded now. It's 50 years ago. But what attracted me to RNA was that it seemed the logical progression of struggle for African Americans in this country. And then also, uh, I've seen, because I've seen a SNCC building in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Did you all join the SNCC office here? Um, yes, uh, we worked with the Friends of SNCC office that was here in Detroit. There was a Friends of SNCC. Okay. And Friends of SNCC was led by Dorothy Dewberry. She's Dorothy mm -hmm. Dewberry Aldrich, 
now? Is she related involved? to Reverend Aldrich? I think she was. She's married, married. to Dan Aldrich. Oh, she's married to she's Dan married Aldrich. To My Dan Aldrich. gosh, I'm learning right. a ton right, right now. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? Right. And she's, uh, like she's been um, a stalwart in the, in the uh, Michigan Coalition for Human Rights. Okay. She is the organizer of the um, Martin Luther King Day at Central Methodist every year. The oh. program and the march. Mm-hmm. She's the central organizer. Really, even mm-hmm. now. Even now. My yes. goodness. Yeah. So yes, we we. Um, We're gonna need her number. Oh, she okay, she's the next one. She's yes. the next interviewer. Okay, Dorothy, wow. I'll give you her number. So yes, we did. We when we arrived here, we started to interact with the SNCC office. Of course, you know, continuing, um, mm-hmm. not wanting to break with what we've been doing in the mm-hmm. south, but the RNA. Um, was the logical, theoretical, or political, ideological, the next step, right, mm-hmm. in um, developing and advancing the African American liberation movement to see ourselves as a nation, mm-hmm. right? And, and can not, you give uh, mm-hmm. the, the a little bit of background what the RNA is? Because I know some people listening, and I've I've told my perspective based on Chokwe Lumumba's perspective, mm-hmm. but to have somebody that was inactive and about it is a, a whole lot different than like uh, hearsay of right. a former leader. Well, the Republic of New Africa was the formulation of, um, I say, a concept of nationalism, a, a particular concept of nationalism. It's rooted in the idea that we as Africans in the United States constitute a nation. We're not just a minority. Mm-hmm. We constitute a nation of people based on the fact that we have evolved a culture that is recognizably ours, that we have occupied a particular area of land over a period of time in the, in the South. Um, that. Uh, we see ourselves and recognize ourselves as having uh, cultural um, heritage in common, mm-hmm. right? And that we have never been offered the opportunity to say we are not a member, we are not a component of the United States of America. We were enslaved, we were given no option to say who we are as a people. Um, Imari and the early founders of RNA said it was our right as human beings to declare who we are as a nation of people and to make that demand, that political demand in on the stage uh, of the world, right? That we should be able to say, we see ourselves as a nation of people. Mm-hmm. Now, where the disagreements came in RNA is, okay, how do you do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Imari's idea was that you hold a plebiscite, uh, you, you move to the South, you proclaim yourself a separate nation, you organize a plebiscite in which the people vote to say yay or nay. Okay, now you okay? Need to about their nationality. Plebiscite is vote. It's just voting. It means okay. voting. The people vote, okay. and they decide uh, whether they are a nation, whether they constitute a nation or okay. not. Okay. So those are the basic ideas or the basic the concept and strategy of the Republic what of New Africa. Um, 
early, uh, early on, Imari asked me to serve as Minister of State Affairs. Now see, he's envisioning a provisional government working on the assumption that we are a nation. Mm -hmm. So we should have a provisional government. Mm -hmm. We should have people who actually um, think about strategies, make up, have decisions about how to move us forward, right? Mm -hmm. So he constituted what he called a provisional government. Mm -hmm. um, and he planned um, a highly visible move south and a, a proclamation of sovereignty of our nation. I disagreed with Imari on that move. Mm -hmm. Having just come from Alabama, I knew the potential of violence, right? When, um, when we put up, I'll give you an example, when we put up a tent city to house um, folks who had become involved in the Lowndes County political party and had been thrown off the land where they were sharecroppers, we had to be really cautious in the evenings because whites would drive past the tent city and shoot into the tent city. Oh my God. Right? Fortunately, no one was ever struck. Nobody was killed. But we had to learn to be cautious for approaching cars, mm -hmm. hit the ground when the gunshots started. So I knew the violence of the South. I knew the madness of the violence of the South. And I said to Imari, I argued with Imari about doing an above ground, highly visible move to Mississippi and uh, proclamation of sovereignty of this provisional uh, government and the nation. And I argued that people were going to be hurt, um, that there would be violence, and that it would be, would be something we would regret. And it turned out exactly that way. Yes. Now, um, with And this... so he asked me to resign. Hmm. He called for my resignation because I was too much against in opposition to of that move. Now, now, with that, you said the leadership. I remember you, you mentioned Amari Obadeli, uh, also uh, like his slave name, Richard Henry, mm -hmm. and uh, his brother, Gaeti. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Obadeli, mm -hmm. uh, his uh, slave name, Milton Henry. Mm -hmm. um, it was it by was, the time this this decision and this disagreement comes up, Gaidi is not so much in the picture, right? There's been a Gaidi has sort of moved away from the everyday mm -hmm. leadership of RNA. Um, I think is it at this point that he pastor begins to pastor a church and to be involved in it's some like, other. Um, in I'm not 70s. sure I have to go back and read, you know, just get all the dates mm -hmm. lined up. But at this point, Gaidi is not in the everyday decision making about whether we move south, how we're going to move south, etc. Mm -hmm. Now, my, what I wanted RNA to do at this point was to encourage people who saw us as an independent nation to move south settle in communities and begin to do the kinds of political education that would move people to a consciousness of us as a nation. Mm. And to see whether people really saw that as the solution to our predicament as Africans in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. we, couldn't, we couldn't predict that in, in advance. The only way to know that was to go and do the work. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and see where people wanted to move, right? We couldn't, we couldn't make that kind of proclamation for millions of people. We had to go do the work. That's what I argued at, at that time. And though many people, you know, sided with Amari and were very impatient with me and what I was trying to say, that is in fact what Chokwe Lumumba ended up ask. doing, right? Many, maybe what, about uh, 10 years later, Chokwe actually yeah. moves south, plants himself in Mississippi, and does exactly what I was saying we, ha we would have to do. And of course, mm -hmm. just takes everything so much further. Yeah. And, and that's what exactly the question I was going to yeah. ask, looking at what Chokwe Lumumba did. Yes. And uh, it's definitely unfortunate with his passing. Another one of my strong, close, big homies. Right. And now that you explained that uh, the marriage, uh, your marriage, it explains the relationship that probably blossomed from that mm -hmm. to uh, Judge Morkel's mm -hmm. support of Chokwe. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you seeing it, and now it even comes to life in another generation as his son, Chokwe mm -hmm. Antoine, right, exactly. is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Exactly. And it looks like possibly in June, I'm going to do something with him and right, continue yes. this. Like, and so, yeah, you advance the people's struggle mm -hmm. in, in whatever means you can, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Chokwe was brilliant in that he understood how to make his vision and his understanding of our uh, our existence as a nation uh, available and accessible to people that he was working with and organizing right and even though he wasn't calling them to move to that level of a plebiscite in which you say to the world you are a nation state he was saying let's see how we can be self-determining right here, right now, mm -hmm. with the resources we have. Mm -hmm. What can we do within this construct of government that we live in? What, what can we do in order to move ourselves another step, give ourselves a greater sense of freedom and a greater um, set of assets and resources? So that was his brilliance, mm -hmm. that though his vision is somewhere way out there mm -hmm. in the future, mm -hmm. he was able to move people Where to, the next, today. to the next step, mm -hmm. yeah, to the next step. Yeah. So I'm interested, um, with that being kind of your thinking 10 years prior to, and mm -hmm. then as mm -hmm. the timeline mm -hmm. moved forward, and mm -hmm. it was actually actualized on right. the show quite. Right. Do you see any issues around gender bias, or do you think it was just a matter of the time had come and you were ahead of the game? Uh, I think it was both. Um, I think that one of the gifts the good Lord has given me is to be able to see mm -hmm. long range. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying where I think it comes from. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was also that it was hard for brothers to hear mm -hmm. a woman mm -hmm. critiquing what they were planning to do. And um, I know it was that, it's interesting because one of the brothers in, uh, um, in RNA here, Chimba Omari. I don't know if you ever got to know Brother Chimba Omari. I, I no. Or, or Brother Yakini Ababakari. Ababakari. Nope. No. Okay. Well, anyway, Chimba Omari um, some years ago did a study circle with 
young brothers in your generation, my son's generation. My son was a part of his study circle. Hmm. And Brother Shimba, who was one of the brothers who would always yell me down when I was trying to articulate a critique <laughs> or make a point or whatever, I'd, I would come away from those meetings with migraines, right? It's like, what, 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 what? Um, Excuse me. Oh, continue. Okay. Um, he told, Brother Chimba told my son, Heru, uh -huh. that um, he regrets, he regrets um, the treatment that brothers, uh, the ways in which brothers treated me in those and, meetings, and, and you that they about, were, in fact, just not ready to hear now, what I wanted to say. Now, you've talked about that before. As, um, I have. Frida has mentioned that, and more so, like, because I'll ask that question as uh, we'll see different things, and a lot of um, a lot of the struggle for human rights as Black people in America is still hidden behind the veil of like sometimes like leadership is you know Black people in positions that white people used to be in, but in that same veil, we still attributed and drank in the traits of sexism. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've mm -hmm. had this discussion mm -hmm. with Freedom mm -hmm. too, but mm -hmm. a lot of the civil rights and black rights struggles mm -hmm. did suppress the voices of a lot of women. And you were one of the women in a couple of the iterations of uh, civil, human, you know, yeah. black rights. But, you know, there was a difference in uh, my experience in, in the South and in SNCC and my experience in RNA and, you know, here in the nationalist movement. Um, I didn't experience that squashing of ideas that, you know, we can't let ourselves hear you mm -hmm. in SNCC. I didn't experience that at all. In really? fact, I always felt that my ideas were welcome, that, you know, um, what I brought to the table was valued. Mm -hmm. However, there were women in SNCC who said they didn't feel that way. So I think a lot depends on preparation for engaging in political and ideological struggle. The fact that I'd been in school at Berkeley where a, a seminar was really about political or ideological struggle, right? And mm -hmm. being able to hold your own in, in that kind of a context, right? So I had that, had that practice, had that skill. And so, and then some of the sisters didn't have that, mm -hmm. hadn't had that. Mm -hmm. So I have, I know that there are sisters who were in SNCC who say, Noah, I did feel as if I didn't have, you know, an equal hearing, but that was not my experience. Whereas here um, with RNA, it was definitely um, and just an inability to really hear what a sister might be proposing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So do you, do you, believe that that is still a dynamic I know when we think about the no, black No, I think lives, brothers you know. have really seriously tried to come to grips with it. Okay. And I think maybe um, Kari's generation, my son's generation, there is a consciousness, a higher level of consciousness about that. And maybe some um, self-discipline in meetings to say, wait a minute, you know, am I, what am I doing here and how am I responding mm -hmm. to the sisters? So I think there's been some change in some evolution in that area so uh, so is there a tension point between kind of the um, the growth or the maturity of the evolution of 
what is Kari's generation and how they interact with women and the hashtag me too dynamic that is very real for women and certainly women of color have been dealing with uh, marginalization and, and harassment for more generations Forever. than we, right, right. exactly. So, so is there a tension point in that space or are you not seeing the two necessarily aligning? Well, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I haven't given enough analysis to the Me Too movement, but I do see it uh, right now as a primarily white women's movement. Um, I haven't looked at the racial statistics, mm -hmm. um, but just the way in which it has evolved and its its sudden uh, access to media and the projection, et cetera, and promotion, it seems to me, you know, a very much a dominant dominant society phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Though we as women of color have been dealing with, you know, this oppression right. um, for for as long as we've been here, right? But I do see it right now as uh, a movement of, of white women. So um, I wouldn't see a direct relationship to what is going on among young brothers in our community and what's happening in that movement. Mm -hmm. I do think that the women in, uh, um, Black Lives Matter, I think they have pushed and pushed the envelope a little bit and really challenged brothers to come to grips with their leadership. They've mm -hmm. been so strong, right? Mm -hmm. And so right on. And, you know, um, I think that has had an impact on young brothers in terms of how they function in the movement as activists. Yeah. But I, I'm not yet. Maybe it hasn't, maybe the Me Too movement hasn't been here long enough for me to begin to make. Uh, to see what relationship there might be to what's happening in our community. I'm not sure. And uh, this is a whole different shift. Okay. Um, you you said when you came here in 67, you walked into uh, great music. But right now, when I think of Mama and Ned, I think, you know, uh, so much is said about the history of Motown down the street. Mm -hmm. But down the street from where my parents live on Leslie was Dudley Randall's house. Mm -hmm. And that was like the, 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 what Motown was for music, mm -hmm. Broadside Press is and was for- Black consciousness. Uh, black yeah. poetry. Black con well, Black consciousness movement, the consciousness movement, mm -hmm. because the poets were at the core of that movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Gwendolyn Brooks and Haki Ma Booty right. and Naomi Long Magic. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you know. So, um, what what led you into this world, into writing poetry? Like you, you, you like walked in. You know, like how, how certain you know people were trying to walk in off West Grand Boulevard. I don't know where people were walking in to see <laughs> Dudley Randall, and then they were like, "Do you want this poem or a sandwich?" Like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had been writing poetry since I was a little girl. It's like poetry had been part of my. I'd always had my little books and writing, trying to write, even trying to write little plays. And so, I remember fourth grade having uh, written a. A Christmas play and standing in the coat, the cloak closet, is that what yes, they were called? Yes. Standing in the cloak closet having a fit because my friends were not saying their lines properly outside where they were performing, oh, right? But um, oh, so poetry and writing had been, you know, I'd been doing that for a long time. But um, meeting Dudley, um, my friend Willie Cosizzili, whom I've already mentioned, 
um, knew Dudley well because from South Dud Africa. yes, from South Africa, Dudley had pu published Willie's early books. Oh. Okay, um, so when Willie and his wife would come to Detroit to visit Stuart and me, um, he would take me with him to. Dudley's house, you know, for the so conversation. Like yeah, very gorgeous. Yes, right. right. <laughs> so that's how I met Dudley and his wife Vivian. Um, then um, I got involved. I told you about working with Mommy Money and several other families to found the Alexander Crummel School, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain, the school was um, actually came out of the Alexander Crummel Church which was led by a young, very progressive Episcopal priest, Anthony Thornell, Father Thornell. Um, the families who attended that church, was, which was kind of an Episcopal mission of the diocese, also were the families that created the school. school. Okay, all right, so at a certain point when Dudley, having worked so hard to um, publish all of those young black consciousness poets, became exhausted, had something of a breakdown, and had to just let the press go. Haki came to us in the church and said, can you take over the press? Hmm. Wow. And keep it going. Ain't that something. Wow. Right, yes. Hmm. And we said yes. So the inventory got moved out of Dudley's house into the Alexander Cromwell Church, which was over there in Highland Park. Uh, we started getting the book orders done so that we'd have the money to pay the bills. Um, did you guys hire somebody that what, did work for them or something? Like, really? We had a little team of about four people who did this. My wow. son, for example, helped, and, and other children who were in the school, wow. helped move the books from Dudley's house into the church basement. Uh, I worked with a team of the church members to do the orders, send out notices, all of the work of running the press, right? Wow. Until amazing. Dudley was ready to take it over again. And how long was that? Um, it was about three or four years. Oh, wow. He, and when he came back, he organized the Broadside Poets Theater, which runs now, Aurora, mm -hmm. organizes the Broadside mm -hmm. Poets Theater um, one Sunday a month. Um, but anyway, he came back, he started publishing again. He published my first book, this one. And I'd like to tell you the story about this. Please. One day he came by my house on Ewald Circle and said, okay, Aneb, time for a confession. You write poetry, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> That's interesting. Because <laughs> we'd never talked about my poetry, right? We'd Are you talked, serious? The whole time. The whole time. The whole you're time. You're, you're, you're the whole hanging time. out with a friend. Hanging out with, hanging out with Dudley, yes, all of that, say, hey, all, you know. uh, no, never did. So he said, okay, well, will you let me see some of it? So I went upstairs and I found this tattered manila envelope that it followed me all over from Berkeley through Lowndes County, Alabama, all the way back up to Detroit, right? And I just kind of gave it to him. I said, okay, here it is. Mm. So the next time I saw the poems that were in that folder, they were in a proof of this book. 
Wow. Mm. <laughs> they were in a proof. So he just he, he was just... bringing me the proof. He said, "Here's the proof of your poems. You should look it over and see if there's any." Now, when you handed him the envelope, uh, it wasn't. An, it was a loose. It was a Manila folder. No, manila folder with pages of poetry in it. Did you know at that moment that he was going to prepare? No, the I thought he. I thought he would look he it over and, and give yeah. me some responses to it. So we, how surprised were you? I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. And he puts the proof down on the table. He said, it's ready, except you, we have to come up with a cover. You want to design a cover? I said, right now, design a cover? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like I should have met Dudley Ray. I know. I wish I had met. <laughs> so I designed a cover. Mm -hmm. This is this this writing of Blood River and this what I thought of as the flowing Blood River. Yes, that's my drawing. And Dudley came mm. up with the font and the print of the. Um, so that's how my that's how I had a first collection of poems published. Mm. Yeah, that that is a really interesting. And so, did did it get in your bloodstream at that point? You you um, knew the value of still, that. I was still reticent. I wasn't absolutely convinced of my talent as a poet. You know, yeah. though Dudley really he he nominated the book for a prize. He told me that Gwendolyn had said, "This isn't a beginning poet. This is a poet." He he wow. relayed all of that information to me. Trying to build my confidence, mm -hmm. right? And when you say Gwendolyn, you're referring to Gwendolyn Brooks? Gwendolyn Brooks, Brooks mm -hmm. right, Miss Brooks. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you know, it's only recently that I have, I have actually claimed this gift. Like I said. Like within the last few years. Really? Really, Like yes. I tell you, some of the most dynamic people are so humble between you and Judge Morkel, both of you. It's only recently that I've that said, is. yes, I, I guess I am a poet. I guess that is part of what I'm here to do. And then also the way that you, even now in speaking, like you're, you're so eloquent with the words and, and what you say, your laugh and the way you read. It's like, if it, you know, it fits, I don't know, like I don't see how you did not see that because every time you read something, I think I could give you, I don't know, what's something that, people shouldn't be reading. I don't know. Whatever it would, it would sound very much like poetry. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Thank <laughs> you for that. But, um, how, how many books have you published? I have been published. Let me um, be more clear. Uh, four books of poems. Four, four books, books of, of poems. And yeah. just recently. And um, a lot of other writings. Um, the other book, uh, there are a couple, there, there's a book on Idlewild that I'm really proud of and that I, I like people to know about because this, this town of Idlewild is so inspirational. You know, the fact that our people decided, hey, we need a, a retreat place too where mm -hmm. we can enjoy the arts and enjoy conversation with each other, enjoy dreaming with each other. Yeah. And they built it and it's wonderful. So that book and then another book called Tower and Dungeon, a study of place and power in America. This was my exploration uh, in the ideas of what do, what do people, what do we as a nation of people really need in order to enjoy ourselves and feel ourselves as a nation, right? That was the big question that I started out with. And then I started thinking about 
how have uh, designers here in the United States um, created the spaces, the public spaces? And what do those spaces tell us? And the more I thought about that, the more I realized, wow, spaces have really been used to discriminate and to set people apart and to, you know, class differences. And, you know, we started looking at things in a new, with new eyes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I started talking about the spatial politics of the United States. Wow. Okay. Um, and how spaces are designed deliberately to control uh, or to have certain impacts on people. And of course, our prisons are the, the you know, the height of that control yeah, and tension. And there's so many, like, you know, it's like you know somebody, and then it's a lot of layers, layers of stuff. Like, um, as you talk about uh, prisons, you were, and that's where you met Yusef, Shaka, Quasi. Uh, they, after they came, I, after they came out, I met them. I worked with Kwasi after and he came. And you all did a, a newspaper. We did first the uh, help our help our prisoners elevate a little meeting group, and then we uh, wrote a book called the Reentry Manual for Brothers About to Come Out of Prison. Kwasi and I worked on that. Yeah, did a lot of prison. But I had been teaching. I had taught at Jackson Maximum Security for four years hmm. before I met Youssef or Kwasi, yeah. okay. any of them. And I had gotten involved in um, the case of um, Ahmed Rahman, the Black Panther, mm. a brother who had been given a natural life sentence um, and had not broken any law, was not a criminal, but uh, was part of a group of Panthers who went into uh, um, a house that they thought was uh, a drug house. Turns out it was a college student cooperative living house. They were set up. They were sent in there by police informant. Mm. They were sent in there to get the drugs and do what Panthers were doing during that period. They went in. There was a dog there. The dog jumped towards one of the uh, Panthers. He shot at the dog and ended up shooting one of the students. Wow. Didn't kill him, but injured injured him. And um, so they all went to prison for that uh, crime. I'm, and um, some of them agreed to give evidence to the police, so they had lighter sentences. Ahmed Rahman refused to give evidence or to cooperate in any way. He was given a life sentence in Jackson. But he was one of my students at the prison. And um, I subsequently got involved in organizing a committee that won his release after about 15 years of working Amazing. on the case. I just thought, did the, did the student die or was he shot? I can't, can't remember. So let's check that. See, let's make sure. Like I said, like you, your life is you know, it's like your life is like a like a four part mini series. Like yeah, of all these different things that you've done and snapshots, and they're still such a creative too because you still write. You're still very active in the fight for water uh, for the city of Detroit currently. Um, yeah, and I brought this booklet that people should know about. Uh, I'm part of a 
what we call um, research collective. And we brought out this book, Mapping the Water Crisis, in which we were able, through mapping and some research, um, I don't know if people can see, but we do a lot of, we mapped where the shutoffs are and where the home foreclosures are. Mm. And we discovered the coincidence of those two strategies of actually moving black people out of the traditional neighborhoods. It, yeah. Where is that uh, book available? Um, that's um, We the People of Detroit, okay. the organization. Go to their website and you can order it. Okay. okay. Mapping the Water Crisis. We the People of Detroit. Of Detroit, right. Mapping the Dismantling of African American Neighborhoods in Detroit. And we're now working on a, a similar um, research project in which we're looking at how the closing of schools are intended to, mm. to uh, add to the destabilization and, um, and removal of the mm. black community. Wow. In, in, actually, that, that leads me into a question that mm -hmm. I had for you, and it was broader, but I think I want to narrow it down. What do you believe are the three most important, or four most important, whatever makes sense for you, issues that black people in Detroit need to concern themselves with right now, and really rise up to? Good Excellent question, but let's see what what. Well, I think first of all to uh, understand that home foreclosures, water shutoffs, school closings, all of these are strategies whereby the black community can be disrupted, dismantled, moved out of the way mm -hmm. to create the new city, which is, I call it a command center. It's like a base for corporations to do whatever they need to do in order to continue th their thriving, their profit making, etc. So it's not a city like anything we've known before in terms of, you know, masses of working people in and out you know, carrying on their lives. It's not that kind of city at all that they have in mind. And if you go downstairs, down, if you go downtown and look at what's going on, you'll start to realize, oh, this is a city with a different purpose for a specific class of people. Mm. And there are amenities for those people, entertainment for those people, a way to move around for those people, mobility, right? It's not us. It's not the masses of our of our people, right? So first of all, understand what's happening to our city, mm -hmm. and understand that the foreclosures and the water shutoffs and those are deliberate tactics or strategies, right? Because there are options. Mm -hmm. um, we know that in some cities, for example, we know that um, city councils have agreed to institute uh, water affordability plans. Water, affordable, water affordability plans allow the city to um, assign uh, bills for water based on the income of a particular household so that there's a guarantee that the people can pay the bills, right? right? And they have discovered that when you do that, there's enough money 
to keep the infrastructure going, to make the repairs to the water infrastructure, um, not to have water shutoffs all the time, etc. Okay, because with water shutoffs, you then invite all kinds of disease, epidemics, etc., etc., which we will no doubt see in the future, in the near future, in Detroit. Um, if you have seventy thousand households with no running water. Imagine how many thousands of people then are not able to carry on just regular self-care uh, and grooming mm -hmm. measures, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Think where those people go to work. Do they work in restaurants? Do they work with our children? Where do they work, right? You can't contain, you can't contain the potential of germ sharing, right? That's, that's out there. So, okay. I'm, I'm skipping, I'm going too far, or trying to say too many things at one time. But That's what's happening, cause. what's yeah. happening to our city, right? Okay, what's happening to our children? How many decades has it been that our children haven't received sound, effective education that would prepare them to function in adults? How many decades has it been in Detroit? where the schools have just not been functioning properly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Pay attention to education, it's so important. Um, so I guess if you look at the gentrification and see all the strategies to remove black folks and you think about education and the school closings, that's also a way, if you, if you don't, you think of a school as a kind of anchor to the community, mm -hmm. you no longer have that school, now parents have got to find somewhere else to take their children to school, or they don't find somewhere else to take their children to school because they don't have a car, they don't have money for bus or whatever. Mm -hmm. What happens? Children are not going to school right. in our city. Whoever heard of in 2018 that children wouldn't go to school? It's absurd. So um, we started this Freedom School movement, Frida, because of this, right? Because the schools are in such disarray and are not doing uh, what they're supposed to do. And because it's, it's uh, deliberate, deliberate because of the trend towards privatization of education with charter schools and all that. And we've discovered that children are coming into our after school and weekend programs not having gone to school during the week. And it's not just that one week, but it's you know long stretches right. of time yeah. when children haven't been in school. So I guess that that's something of an answer to your question. It is. <laughs> I, have, I have this question, as you've been in a lot of these fights, and then I'll let you ask a question. But it's so funny, because Frida almost always asks a question that I'm about to ask, and you probably <laughs> ask a question along this line. You've been involved in so many of these fights uh, or struggles, or just like uh, uh, the the advocacy for human rights on behalf of people like you, and just uh, what's just. Mm -hmm. How do you keep your own like uh, personal, you know, um, emotion, spirit in, in such a, you know, um, in such and, and stay with warmth through this and then interacting with so many people because some of the people you will touch are going through this struggle Absolutely. and interpret everything as a struggle and right. a fight 
But every time I see you, I'm always like, man, you got a smile around my neck. So how do you That's, keep he's that? He's so kind. He's so generous to me. <laughs> how do you keep the balance? That, yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you keep that? Balance? I think it's really grace of God. I can't claim any. I just really have to say it's the grace of God. And of course, I, you know, it's a gift. But I do. I pray. Mm -hmm. I pray a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I try to get enough rest. I try to remember that um, what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. What we send into the universe, you know, is a cycle. So I'm conscious. What am I? What am I sending out? What am I giving? I try to stay conscious. Um, but I do say I have to attribute to the grace of God, who, mm. who, the Creator, the being, the being, yes, whoever. Yes. Um, I have to say um, that I'm still alive, for example, right? Because there were so many points in the South when, when you know, when I was in danger, mm -hmm. and, and I might not have survived. So the fact that I'm still here, I have to attribute to a power greater. Than myself, hmm. and the fact that I continue to f to be drawn to do the work, I have to attribute that to a greater power Indeed. too. Indeed. So this actually it's it's a great segue, and thank you, Kari, for helping set that up. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, uh, Dr. House, I get to this point where I want to have a conversation around the value or impact of the church inevitably i get here i try not to <laughs> but I being do, a preacher's daughter right that pk thing keeps slipping in has to get in there somehow or the <laughs> Just, other right because the, truthfully there's some things that i'm trying to reconcile or perhaps challenge the black church to really see critically mm -hmm. what they are and what they are not doing okay. and charge them to to step into the next space so that we as a community will be okay. Right. right. So you know, so here's here's my question, if I can frame it up. One of my dearest friends is a, is a uh, kindergarten school teacher, and she uh, regales um, myself and many of our associates with these stories that are honestly quite heartbreaking when she talks about the babies coming into, if, if they make it, coming into the schools completely ill-prepared in any kind of way to learn, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to be positioned so that they can have a successful, productive life. And the parents uh, don't seem to really uh, appreciate or understand or able to negotiate the value the of that experience. The parents themselves are suffering, right? Yeah, so, so we've got this huge interruption mm -hmm. in our future. Mm -hmm. What do you see the church's responsibility in that space, if any, mm -hmm. And, and what would your charge to them be, if any, for them to be mm -hmm. productive in that space? Well, we know that the, the role of the church has been just so important to our survival as a race in this country, right? In terms of it's having been the place where black folks could organize themselves and could work in unity and could come up with ways to feed themselves, protect themselves, ins create insurances for themselves, right? And we also know that aside from the church at that organizational level and that level as an institution that educated people and gave people skills, there were also those members of the church who were visionaries and who were radical in their thought and who called the people, you know, to move forward, mm -hmm. not just to stay within 
the comfort they could create for themselves in the institution of the church, right? So there's always been both those aspects of the church, right? So I value the institutional um, strength and capacity and role of the black church. Mm -hmm. I value it and I respect it. But I always hope for the voices, you know, coming out of that faith, out of that religious practice. I always value the voices that call, that say, there's more to be done, right? And we have a responsibility because we do see and we know we have, we have to do more. Um, churches where there is great wealth, you know, the churches that now fly their ministers around in private jets and all of that. What about the communities surrounding their, right. you know, their properties? What's what's going on in those communities? There are children in those communities that haven't gone to school or are hungry uh, or don't have, you know, appropriate clothing to go to school mm -hmm. in. So, Yes, I would say yes to the church as an institution, but I'd also say um, there's a big calling for you, you know, raising consciousness, mm -hmm. um, moving the people forward, getting them to see a, a, a more radical vision of their responsibility as religious people, yeah. as spiritual people. I love that more radical vision of their responsibility. I, I think about uh, the resources uh, that exist within the churches in the city Fantastic and resources. what those resources could do without any additional expense, what those resources could do to help close that gap with, with our babies. We have, um, as part of the Detroit Independent Freedom Schools movement, we called on churches to open their sites to um, to the children after school and on weekends so that volunteers could go in and organize learning experiences for them. So easy to do, right? So easy. But so far, we haven't had a great deal of response. So we're going to still push on it, though, because they have the facilities, they have the capacity. So we have to just keep working at it, keep organizing, keep mm -hmm. trying to appeal to them. But yeah, I see that. I don't put the church down because look what it does, right? It teaches people how to organize. It enhances their personal skills of engagement. It does so many things, right? Mm -hmm. um, it gives them something, you know, spiritual uh, sustenance. It does wonderful things. So we just need to find those voices within those communities who see the need for something greater even, you know? You know, uh, Kari, I'm inclined to agree with you. That was an incredibly peaceful way to 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 speak to that issue. You know, and I I adore the church, and mm -hmm. I, and I need to I be do too. Really I love the music. That. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah. the music is just so wonderful. Yeah. And I love the you know the inner culture, the inner church culture, the way people greet each other, the way they express love for each other. It's I love that. It's so beautiful and so valuable. Yeah. And and so valuable and. Uh, I just hope that that they are able to connect that kind of ra radical visionary mm -hmm. and progressive thinking forward towards the community to continue to to hold that space of relevant mm -hmm. relevance. Uh, one of my struggles, I fear that they're not because they're not doing that. They're starting to marginalize themselves, mm -hmm. and that breaks my heart mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it is the institution of our community. Exactly, and if not the church. Whom. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So where else is there that strength? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Right. 
I'm uh, as always. I I, I would I know that uh, Mama Nan, Doctor House, needs to get ready for our next appointment. I think <laughs> you got another appointment, and um, but Excuse me. we definitely will have to welcome you back. Always great. This is wonderful. Mama Nan. Yeah, and I, she, I, she has the coolest mom too. So, well, my mom just turned ninety eight in uh-huh. January. So That's yes, awesome. still strong, still active active in her church, a mother of the church. I don't know how many different boards on the church she's still <laughs> serving on, you know, still coming up with programs for the, you know, how should I do this? Can you type that up for me if I, oh, no. so I have, I find myself typing up things, running them off and then mailing them to my mother so that she can use them in what whatever do. she's doing. That's right? exactly right. That's, yeah, that's their daughter duty, right? No matter right, how, daughter right? duty, no matter what, right, exactly. That's so powerful. Exactly. Thank you so much for your spirit. I, Enjoyed and it. For your Enjoyed lifelong it. commitment uh, to um, all people, and certainly our people, it is just a real gift to be in your company. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the, the conversation. And <clears throat> thank you so much for your affirmation of the work. Thank you. Indeed. Indeed. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.